doing well, Chodesh Tov. And um, you know, obviously, you know, this Tuesday is a fast day. Uh, many women are lenient on it, so I don't know whatever you're going to be doing. But even if uh, you're not going to be... Oh, you didn't even know that? No, I didn't know that women were lenient. Well, I mean, you know, well, many women are lenient and many men are lenient too. It's, uh, you know, if you have discomfort fasting. So we're more lenient. Uh, but there are a few, few unusual things about the Sarah Bateves. Uh, number one, uh, it is the only fast that we sometimes fast on Friday. If a Sarah Bateves falls out on Friday, we actually fast going into Shabbos. You know, and only when Shabbos starts do we, do we break it. Uh, and uh, number two, it is brought down that if it would fall out on Shabbos, you would even fast on Shabbos. Now that's a counter-reality hypothetical because under the Jewish calendar, the 10th of Tevez can never fall out on Shabbos. But theoretically, if it would, it would even override Shabbos, just like Yom Kippur. Even Tishbub does not override Shabbos. And uh, Asura B'Teves, it is brought down in different svarim, is like a Rosh Hashanah. You know, Rosh Hashanah is a Yom Hadin, a day of judgment, if you live or die. Asura B'Teves is a Yom Hadin on the issue of Binyan Beis HaMikdash or Chorban Beis HaMikdash. In other words, Asura B'Teves is the day that Hashem decides if the coming year we will have a Beis HaMikdash or not. So uh, whether you fast or don't fast, it's an important time to uh, think about uh, tshuva and uh, sinas chinam. According to some sources, Bechiras Yosef happened on the Sarabateves, Yosef being sold. So that makes it a day where we committed the sins of tremendous hatred and jealousy. So Hashem, we hope that uh, even this year, even this year, there will not be a fast of Asara B'Teves, but if Chas V'Shalom, we do have to fast this year, then may it be the very, very last uh, time that we have a fast over the Chorban, the Chorban B'Samikdash. Now, to make things even harder for you, the Shulchan Aruch brings down that there were some tzaddikim that had a three-day fast. They would eat in between at night. They would fast the eighth, Ninth and tenth of Tevez. Our minog is not to do that. Obviously, we don't do that. But but uh, such a custom is recorded. And let me just go over what that would re- represent. First of all, what happened on the tenth of Tevez? Why is it a fast day? What happened on the tenth of Tevez was Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king, sent his army to begin a siege against Jerusalem. This is for the first temple, not the second temple. And culminating three years later in the destruction of the Beis HaMikdash. So Asara B'Tevez is the very, very, very beginning of the process that resulted in the Chorban Beis HaMikdash. In a sense, nothing happened on Asara B'Tevez. It was simply an army surrounded Jerusalem. As far as we know, no Jew died that day. Uh, the, the, the Babylonians did not break into the city that day. They began the siege. But because it is the beginning, it is the seed of Chorban, destruction, and Golos, we observe it as a, as a fast day. That is what happened on the 10th. Now, one little thing just to think about. And that is, when you think about the 9th of Av, the 9th of Av is both the destruction of the first Beis HaMikdash and the second Beis HaMikdash. Both temples were destroyed 
on the same day. Can you know, do you know how many years apart? Because we know exactly how many years apart it was. We can figure this out. Relatively easy. It was 490 years to the day. How do I know that? Because when the first temple was destroyed, it was 70 years of exile till we rebuilt the second temple. 70. And how many years did the second Beis HaMikdash stand? 420. So if you uh, are good with advanced mathematics, 70 plus 420 equals 490. So it was 490 years to the day that the second Mikdash was destroyed by the Romans. And in fact, this is uh, prophesied in the book of Daniel. book of Daniel is a very, very hard book. There's many messianic calculations in the book of Daniel. But in Daniel, there's a reference. Hashem has decreed on Yerushalayim 70 weeks. Now, this is a little unusual. In Tanakh, the idea of a week does not always mean seven days. It could also be seven years. So God decreed 70 weeks on Yerushalayim. If a week means seven years, 70 weeks is 490 years. 70 weeks of years. And that was the remez that was already told to Daniel. This is, be, this is right after the, this is during the 70 years of the Babylonian exile, that there would be 490 years from the Chorban Bayes Rishon to the Chorban Bayes Bayesheni. That is why the Rambam says a very interesting thing. The Rambam says, uh, was the fast of the ninth of Av observed, uh, was the fast of the ninth of Av observed during the second Beis HaMikdash, right? The first Beis HaMikdash was destroyed, so for 70 years they certainly kept Tisha But then the second Beis HaMikdash was built. So here's the question. For the 420 years that we had the second Beis HaMikdash, did they fast on the ninth of Av? So you might argue, well, why should they? Uh, you know, they have a Beis HaMikdash. What, what, what should they fast for? But the Rambam actually writes that although they did not keep the other fast days, they didn't, have some, they didn't keep some Vidalia, they didn't keep the 17th of Thomas, they didn't keep Asar B'Tevet. But Tisha B'Av, they fasted even when they had the second Beis HaMikdash. Now, why would that be so? So I'll give you two reasons. Reason number one is that the second Beis HaMikdash never fully replaced the first Beis HaMikdash. There were things we had in the first Beis HaMikdash that we never got again. We're only going to get the third Beis HaMikdash when Mashiach comes. But we didn't have it in the second Mikdash. A few examples. We didn't have prophecy, Nevuah, in the second Beis HaMikdash. We didn't have the Aron HaKodesh and the Luchos in the second Beis HaMikdash. It was concealed and we never got it back. If you walked into the Kodesh HaKadoshim during the 420 years of the second Beis HaMikdash, for Yom Kippur, the Kohen Gadol walked into the Kodesh HaKadoshim, there was nothing in the room. It was an empty chamber. I mean, it was full of godliness, of course. I mean, it's Kodesh Kadoshim, But there was no physical object in there. Okay, there was not an Arun HaKodesh. So 
One reason why we would fast during the second base on Mikdash is because we didn't, we didn't gain it. We still lost every, a lot of things that we lost in the first base on Mikdash. But there's another reason why we fasted. Because given the fact that the Jewish people knew that the second base of Mikdash was going to be destroyed, that was already told to Daniel, every Tisha B'Av they would fast and pray that Hashem should cancel the decree. Because remember, evil decrees can always be canceled. Even if Hashem tells you the base of Mikdash is going to be destroyed, if we do tshuva, that's right, tshuva, tzfilu, tzdaka, right, tshuva and uh, prayer and, and charity, ma'virin esroa hagzera, they take away the evil decree. So Tisha B'Av was the day of tshuva and prayer that the second base of Mikdash should not be, should not be destroyed. They knew it would be destroyed? So they knew, that, well they knew because Daniel's prophecies were already written down. It was part of Tanakh, it's in Tanakh. So they knew it. So there was always this sense of fear and trepidation. They knew it was coming unless they do tshuva, unless, they, 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 unless Hashem cancels the decree. So that's the, yeah. Uh, what, is this a, we just were learning about obligatory and not consistent obligatory fast for women or no? So it's a little tricky. Um, technically, today, it is not even obligatory for men. It's only minhag. Meaning, it would depend. When the Jewish people are being persecuted, then the fasts are obligatory, both for men and for women. When the Jewish people are in Golos, but they're not being actively persecuted, and most Jews are not being actively persecuted, but we're in Golos, then it has the status of minhag, and that's the basis, and that's the question whether women are obligated in the minhag. And what's minhag? Oh, minhag means uh, binding custom based on accepted practice. And the reason why we're a little more lenient today is because other than Tisha B'Av, we look at the other three fast days as minhag fast days, custom fast days, rather than obligations. And at a time, let's say, maybe during the Holocaust or during times of active, active persecution, the fast days would become obligatory. And then you would not really differentiate between men and women. But today, we consider them, to, other than Tisha B'Av, we consider them to be optional, but binding because of minhag. In other words, there is a concept in Halakha, a very important concept, that even if something in its inception was optional, if the Jewish people have accepted it as a practice, that becomes a customary practice that is binding. So the word is for that is minog. Minog is a very important principle in, in halacha. Did the Jews know, <clears throat> did they know that the Beis would be destroyed on the ninth like of that's what they passed on that? Uh, that's a good question. Uh, it's not clear how they would know that because in Daniel's prophecy, it does not say ninth above, but it seems that they had a sense that this is the day that's set aside for tragedy. Because remember, the day of Ninth of Av is a day of tragedy is way, way before the destruction of the temple. It all goes back to the spies and the Chumash. Remember, the spies came back on the 8th of Av and they gave their report. And that night, which is the Ninth of Av, everybody, all the men, the women didn't cry, but all the men cried and complained. So what did God say? You are crying for no reason. I will make this day a day of weeping for a reason. So they knew already all the way back from the time of the Torah that the ninth of Av is a, going to be a tragic thing. So when the first Beis HaMikdash gets destroyed, I think, and they knew the second one was going to get destroyed, they had a feeling that 
It's going to be bad. All right, so that's the fast of the 10th of Tevez. Now, one thing to point out, that the 10th of Tevez has nothing to do with the second temple, only the first temple, right? Because the 10th of Tevez is the day that Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylonia, surrounded or began the siege against Jerusalem. That's the first temple. For some reason, we don't even know when the Romans began their siege against Jerusalem, and that's not commemorated as a fast day. The point I want to point out is that unlike the ninth of Av, which commemorates both the first Beis HaMikdash and the second Beis HaMikdash, Asara B'Teves is miyuchad, it is unique, that it only focuses on the first Mikdash, not the second one. I don't necessarily have a, have a complete answer why that's so, but it is something to think about, that the tragedy of the 10th of Teves is connected to the Mikdash Rishon and not to the Mikdash Sheni. The same thing is true for the Fast of Gedaliah. Right, what is the Fast of Gedaliah? Right after Rosh Hashanah, there's the Fast of Gedaliah. So after Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the first temple, so he appointed a governor, a Jewish governor, over the few Jews that remained in Eretz Israel. And that governor was a big tzaddik. His name was Gedaliah. And Gedaliah was assassinated by another Jew who was jealous of him. Mom, is a Jew killing a Jew. And that kind of was the nail in the coffin, meaning as long as Gedaliah was alive, even when the Beis HaMikdash was destroyed, people thought perhaps Gedaliah could be a Mashiach that will rebuild the Beis HaMikdash. Once Gedaliah gets destroyed, they knew that the Golas was, was it, at least for 70 years. So Tzom Gedaliah, the fast of Gedaliah, is also connected to the first Beis HaMikdash, not the second. So Tisha B'Av is for both, but Tzom Gedaliah and Asara B'Teves are connected to the first Beis HaMikdash, and 17th of Tammuz is Badafka connected to the second Beis HaMikdash. That is when the Romans broke into Yerushalayim and they destroyed the temple three weeks later. So, so some fast days are both, some fast days are only first Mikdash, and some, one fast day is only for the second uh, Mikdash. By the way, in terms of Tzom Gedalia, just a little bit of, I mean, obviously it's not relevant in the calendar right now, we're very far from Tzom Gedalia. But uh, there are opinions that actually say Gedalia was killed on Rosh Hashanah. But since you're not allowed to fast on Rosh Hashanah, we make the fast the first available day that you are allowed to fast, and that's the day after Rosh Hashanah. So the fast is on the 3rd of Tishrei, not because Gedalia was killed on the 3rd of Tishrei, but because that's the first day you could fast after he was killed. He was killed on Rosh Hashanah itself. What happened on the 17th of August? 17th of Tammuz? Uh, yeah, yeah, 17th of Tammuz, was the day that the Romans broke through the wall of Jerusalem. The uh, huh? The second temple? For the second, yeah, the Romans are the second temple. See, it's interesting that we're kind of missing a date for each thing, because like this. For the first temple, we commemorate the beginning of the siege, but not the day that the Babylonians broke through the wall. I thought it was just the same for both. So you thought it was the same? For what? I thought, I thought that Well, okay, to clarify it a little bit, it, it's, it's not the same, uh, because for the first Beis HaMikdash, they broke through the wall on the 9th of Tammuz. Oh. Uh, and the second Beis HaMikdash, they broke through the wall on the 17th of Tammuz. 
and the Chachamim didn't want to make a f- two fast days so close to each other. Oh. Yeah. But they had no problem doing three in a row. It's, it's only, oh, oh, well, that's only for Tzadikim. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Although Tzom Gedal and Yom Kippur are also, with the, they're a week, a week apart. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, the three in a row is not for everybody. It's only unique, uh, unique people. Okay, so, so now you know what is the 10th of Tevez. So what about the 8th and the 9th? What happened on the 8th and the 9th, right? So this is not connected to the base of Mikdash. This is a totally different thing. On the 8th of Tevez was the completion of the Greek translation of the Torah. We talked about this, I think, with Hanukkah. What's going on? This happened during the second base of Mikdash. The second base of Mikdash, and it's up; it's not destroyed. You remember we discussed when Alexander of Macedonia conquered the Persian Empire, and Alexander died at the age of thirty-one. He conquered virtually the whole world, so his empire was divided among different generals. And the uh, general that took over Egypt and North Africa, his name was Ptolemy. In Hebrew, it's Ptolemy. And in English, it's spelled P-T-O-L-M-E-Y, Ptolemy. That's how they pronounce it. And in Syria, the general was Seleucus, and Antiochus was the great, great, great grandson of Seleucus. And that's the Hanukkah story later on. But this is way before the Hanukkah story. Ptolemy was what you might call, well, either a bibliophile, meaning either he loved books or he just was a Balgaiva, he built a library in which he wanted to have every book in the world in his library, like the Library of Congress tries to have everything. Now, in those days, it was a little easier because there were fewer books than there are today. I mean, now it's getting harder and harder and harder. Um, but be it as it may, he wanted a copy of the Torah. But he wanted the Torah to be in a language that his people, he could read and his people could read. The language was Greek. So he got 72 elders, Chachamim, sages of Israel. He put them in separate rooms and he told them to translate the Torah into the Greek language. And a miracle happened that all 72 people came up with the same exact translation. And although it was 72, but we commonly call it, in Hebrew we call it Targum Hashivim, the translation of the 70 elders. And uh, in Greek, it's known as, in scholarly literature, we call it the Septuagint. Septuagint just means 70. And uh, in scholarly literature, it is abbreviated with the Roman numeral for 70, which is LXX. Right? You know Roman numerals? Okay, well, okay. That's what you have to. <laughs> okay. Ever try to do multiplication with Roman numerals? That's a real, that's a real nightmare. Huh? What's LXX times CD? <laughs> it's very, very hard. But be it as it may, LX, so if you see, if you read an article or a book, and the footnote says, the LXX translates it as so-and-so, that's a reference to the Septuagint. We, we have the Septuagint. Uh, now, what types of changes did the 72 elders make? So they changed a few things. But, but obviously it was Ruach HaKodesh because how did they come up with the same things to change? One thing they changed was the order of the first three words of the Torah because it could be misunderstood. What are the first three words of the Torah? Bereshis bara Elohim. In the beginning, God created heaven and earth. 
But if you read it literally, you could actually read Elohim as the object instead of the subject. You could translate it, Bereshit bara Elohim, the beginning created God. You could read it that way. But that would imply that God was created by something called the beginning. So in order that people, God forbid, should not misinterpret, they change the order of the words. Instead of whatever Greek would be, I don't know Greek, whatever it would have been, instead of in the beginning God created, or created God, that's, that's the literal, right? the beginning created God, they put God first. God created the beginning. That was one change. Another change was political correctness. When the Torah lists non-kosher animals, so one of the non-kosher animals it lists is Arnevis. Arnevis is a rabbit. Right? A rabbit is a trafe animal. Actually, it's an interesting question. You know, you know the Torah says, this is a, actually a very, very difficult question. There are two sides for a kosher animal. Right? It has to have a split hoof, and it has to chew its cud. That means it swallows the food like a cow and then regurgitates it. Chewing the cud. So the Torah says by a rabbit that a rabbit is treif, or well, arnevis, that's right, arnevis, because although it chews its cud, it does not have a split hoof. Now it's true, rabbits don't have a split hoof. But also, rabbits don't chew their cud. So actually, it's, it's a very, very difficult culture. The terrorist seems to say... They don't chew their cud? Rabbits they do not chew look it. like they're chewing. So, yeah, so, so that's the question. That's the question. In other words, the, 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 the normal process of chewing cud means uh, you have multiple... The cow has multiple stomachs and regurgitates. So you have to be... You have to kind of give a little bit of an explanation that when the terrorist says a rabbit chews its cud, it does not mean a rabbit chews its cud the way a cow chews its cud, but it has the appearance of chewing its cud. What I'm saying is you have to reinterpret the language a little bit. But be it as it may, what was their problem with rabbit? Apparently, the Greek word for rabbit is the same name as Mrs. Talmai, as Talmai's wife. So, uh, let's... Is this a proven? Do we know who's, what Talmai's wife is? I think, I think, I want to check this. I think Bernice... Bernice is a name. Bernice, <laughs> I think, is a name that means rabbit in Greek. I think so. Bernice. So, so, if they would use Greek, so when the Torah says, don't eat in our nervous because it's an impure animal. So it would say, Bernice is an impure animal. You know, so that would have been a real insult uh, to the king and to the king's wife. So they used a different word for rabbit, a less common word for rabbit. Right? And they made all of these changes. Now, the Gemara says, the day that this translation was completed, darkness came into the world. And that is why people, some people fast on the 8th of Teves, because the 8th of Teves was that day that the Targum HaShivim was completed. So the question is, what's so bad about it? I mean, here we have a translation by Chachme Yisrael, the sages of Israel. And obviously, Hashem inspired them to, 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 to do what they had to do. It was a Ruach, Ruach HaKodesh. So why do our Chachamim say that this was a dark and bad day for Am Yisrael, which Sadiqim at least, again, our, our custom is we don't fast, but Sadiqim at least, would fast on this day. 
because this was a tragedy, right? So what's so tragic about the translation of the Torah into Greek? So there are a few ways of understanding it. One way of understanding it is that by making the Torah accessible to other people, to non-Jews, that gives them the ability to introduce distortions, meaning, yeah, on one hand, it's a beautiful thing to make the Torah available to everybody. But on the other hand, once it's available to everybody, then everybody could publish their own books, their own understandings, their own explanations, much of which will be against the will of Hashem. So maybe there was an idea that keep the Torah for the Jews because we don't want the non-Jewish world to introduce distortions. Just like, for example, uh, Christians even today, they will use our Tanakh to prove Jesus, to prove Yashka, right? They'll use different uh, arguments, which are refutable, but on the other hand, a lot of people could get deceived. A lot of people could get fooled by it. So that's one idea, meaning the tragedy was that the Torah is more available to the non-Jewish world. But there's another tragedy, and that is, remember that Talmai's capital was Alexandria. I think we spoke about this. Alexandria, which was founded by and named after Alexander the Great, was a, had a very large Jewish population. They were wealthy. They were politically well-connected. They were affluent. They were powerful. But they were very assimilated and very Jewishly illiterate. And they needed to see the Torah in Greek because no one would understand it in the original. So the Chachamim are upset because they're basically saying it's a tragedy that Jews cannot read the Torah in the original and they have to rely on translations. So it's a funny thing. The analogy that I think of is, let's imagine, God forbid, somebody was in an automobile accident and their legs are smashed. And until they get a wheelchair or crutches, they just can't walk. And finally, the wheelchair and crutches arrive. And you're very, very happy. Baruch Hashem. But it would be a lot better if you didn't break your legs. So on one hand, we're grateful for the crutches. But we're sad that we need the crutches. That's how we understand the proliferation of so much Torah in English today. It's a wonderful, wonderful thing. It is a wonderful thing that so much of the Torah is available in English so people can learn and, and delve into things that they otherwise would never be able to see. But simultaneously with the joy of having access to Torah is also a sadness that we need all of these crutches and we're not yet able to kind of go back to the original because Lashon HaKodesh always has infinite depths that it cannot be captured in a, in a translation. So that would be the second reason why the 8th of Teves was considered to be a fast day. Again, again I don't, uh, even if you're very strict, please do not fast on the 8th of Teves. I'm not telling you to fast on the but it's brought down that there were tzaddikim that would fast on the 8th of Teves uh, because of that. Now the 9th of Teves, it's very, very interesting uh, there's a lot of uncertainty. What was the fast of the ninth of Tevis? So I'm going to tell you uh, some things that will be very crazy to you. You, you, you probably really quite quite unbelievable. Well, the first reason is not unbelievable. The first reason is that the ninth of Tevis is said to be the yard site, the patira, the day of death, 
of Ezra Hasofer. Ezra the scribe. Who is Ezra the Sofer? So there's a book in Tanakh. One of the books of the Ksuvim is the book of Ezra. Ezra was the person who led the Jews back, only a minority of Jews, after the 70 years of the Babylonian exile. He brought Jews back. Uh, and it is said that Ezra was so great that he was as worthy as Moshe Rabbeinu of giving the Torah to Am Yisrael, except for the fact that we already got the Torah through Moshe. So Ezra was extremely great. Ezra was a Kohen. Ezra was the one who founded the 120-member group called Anshe, Knesset Hagdola, the men of the Great Assembly. You've heard of them? They're mentioned in Pirkei Avos. They were the people who wrote our tefillos, our Shemona Esrei. Uh, they made many, many takanos. They kept Judaism alive uh, through the 70 years of exile and the beginning of the Second Temple period. So some consider Ezra to be so great that his yard site, the day that he died, would be kept as a fast for tzaddikim. Just as some tzaddikim fast on the seventh of other, yeah, which is Moshe Rabbeinu's yard site. So we regard the ninth of Teves and the seventh of Adar as kind of the same situation because Ezra is like Moshe number two. Why would you fast on that? Uh, so the question is, uh, well, you, you, you know, uh, first of all, many, many people fast on, on, the, on their parents' yard site. You know, so, really? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Hasidim have a different way. Hasidim uh, make a kiddish. Hasidim like, bring in schnapps or whatever. So it's a different, it's a different, right, right, they eat more. It's a different minute. But, but the, Gemara, the Gemara does record that uh, one should try to fast on the yard side of their parents. So for great tzaddikim, there were in Yanim of fasting uh, for great tzaddikim. Okay, so that, that's the simple fast of the night. Ezra was the founder of it. He was the first one. He was the first member. He created the Anshe Knesset Hagdola because uh, he determined that Klal Yisrael needed like many gedolim, many, many prophets and tzaddikim to come together to make uh, decrees for the benefit of Am Yisrael. Okay, it couldn't just be this rabbi, this rabbi. It had to be a whole group of many. Uh, the last person of Anshe, the last survivor of Anshe Knesset Hagdola was Shimon, Shimon HaTzadik. Uh, and he was the Kohen God when Alexander came and conquered uh, Eretz Israel. Okay, so that's the simple reason for the ninth day. Now I'm going to give I'm going to give you two wild reasons, and the wild reasons are connected to Christianity. Reason number one: the tenth of Tevei, some say, is actually the birthday of Yashka. Now we know the Christians celebrate the birthday of Yashka on December twenty-five. And that may not be accurate. Even as, even as a secular date, that may not be accurate. In fact, the Greek Orthodox Church and the Russian Orthodox Church do not do that holiday on that day. They have another day. But some have figured out, if you go back to the Hebrew date of that year, you get the 9th of Tevez. No, no, the 9th. That's what I'm saying. I'm trying to explain to the people who fast on the 9th of Tevez. And therefore... The ninth of Teves might be a fast, according to some opinions, because it is the birthday of Yashka, and uh, that created many, many sufferings for the Jewish people over hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, and therefore we fast on the day that he was born. 
See, for tzaddikim, you fast on the day they die because we've lost them, at least Bagashmias. For Rishayim, you fast on the day they're born because it would have been better had they not come into the, into the world. Jesus was a, a Russia, according to... Huh? Yashka? Himself? He was a Russia? Well, we assume so, yeah. Why, why? you assume that? Uh, what do you assume? I assume that most of the, like, the, like evil of Christianity and stuff, that all came after. Like, oh, that, that's true. Out. No, no, that's true. I, I mean, Yashka didn't live long. I mean, Yashka didn't do anything. Right. Like, uh, also, he didn't have that many But on the other hand, Yashka made, made false claims. He claimed he was mm-hmm. a Mashiach. He claimed all sorts of things. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he was a Navi Sheker, and he, and he pulled Jews away from... from uh, following the Torah. So, yeah, I mean, I'm not blaming Yashka directly for uh, the physical things that happened to Jews. Yeah, he didn't do the Crusades. He wasn't alive then. But he was like a Mesus. A Mesus means he pulls Jews away from uh, following the Torah properly. So that, that's called the Russia. Is he like the only Mesus in the Jewish history? Oh, no, so no. Like, no. There, there are plenty. <laughs> why would he specifically... Well, well, the re- well, well, the reason is because... Uh, Obviously, the movement he started became the most powerful movement. I mean, the, I mean, the average Mesis was one guy, and when he got killed, that was over. Uh, Yashka started a movement that involves billions of, you know, over his billions of people, and many, many sorrows happened to us. So, in retrospect, we say it would have been better for us had he not been born and not started the whole thing. Okay, okay, so Nitlnach is, is, is not related to this, but, but, uh, to this, but, but it, Nitlnach is presupposing Yashka's birthday was December 25. Okay. And there are two interpretations of Nitlnach. There is the rational interpretation and the Kabbalistic interpretation, which I'll, I'll tell you both. The, Nitlnach basically meant that the night of Kratzmach, the night of December 25th, Jews did not go to Shul, they did not go to the base Medrash, and they did not learn Torah. That's what Nitl, those who kept the custom. Now, there were two reasons for it. The rationalistic reason simply says it was extremely dangerous to leave your house because the Goyim would often have a pogrom that night. So simply lock yourself at home and pray. And really, that rationalistic custom did not answer learning Torah at home. It just said, don't go to show, don't go to the base medrash. So that's a rationalistic explanation that simply says it was dangerous for a Jew to be in the street. The Kabbalistic explanation, which is schwer, but this is brought down, is that because it was the night of his birth, the powers of Tuma are very great. So when you learn Torah, you're giving spiritual energy to powers of impurity, and therefore it is better for you not to engage in learning Torah. Now, that's a very, very difficult idea because we normally don't say learning Torah gives power to the impurity. The other way around, learning Torah fights impurity. Second of all, why would you use a secular date yeah. for that? I mean, uh, if, if you're talking about the day has the powers of Tuma, the day that has the powers of Tuma is not the secular calendar. It would be maybe the ninth of Teves or whatever, whatever your day is. So... All I can say is some people have such a meaning. I don't know what Chabad's meaning. A lot of it is a big, like, even like the Rabbin, they would play chess on it. Like it was a thing. 
okay, okay, so it's so, so a little bit, yeah. but, but, but this is the basis, the Kabbalistic basis is this. As I say, some say it was a rationalistic thing, that it was dangerous, but if you tell me the Rebbein played chess, so they obviously were looking at it, B'derech uh, Nister, that, 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 that you're being Maisif, uh, you're, you're giving the powers of Kedusha to Tuma. Okay, uh, yeah. Yeah. Why yeah. do you believe that he exists? Well, uh, here's the thing. Uh, you have to keep in mind that there are a few references in the Gemara to Yashka, to Jesus. Uh, many of them were censored by the Catholic Church over the years, and only recently we've gotten them back. Uh, but you are correct. Uh, you're not always sure who you're talking about because they could refer to different times. So the question is, how do you know he even existed? Um, well, maybe, you know, maybe we don't know, but, 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 but at least one Talmudic text in, in Masechus Sanhedrin seems to fit the time and the place of the Christian figure. Now, let me just remind you of a very simple point. Uh, Yashka was Jewish, he was Jewish, and most of his apostles were, were Jewish. They were Jewish. And in fact, some of them kept mitzvos. I mean, they believed he was their Mashiach, whatever it is, but they kept mitzvos. They dabbins, you know, they, they kept kosher. Uh, the so-called Last Supper, which is the meal that he had the day before he died, was a Pesach Seder. It was a Pesach Seder. And in fact, in Da Vinci's famous painting, you have four cups of wine on the table. You know? So, it's very complicated, meaning to say... Uh, some of them actually believed in the Torah, but they also believed that he was, you know, the, the Mashiach, whatever it would be. Some of them rejected the Torah, and so, so it was a mix. It was a mix. And initially, Christianity was not a separate religion. Christianity was a sect within Judaism. And really, it was only Paul who lived after Yashka. Paul didn't even know Yashka. Paul is the inventor of Christianity, not, not, not Yashka. Yashka created a sect within Judaism that was a deviant sect. Paul made it a separate religion. And that was like, you know, 50 years after, after Yashka died. Yeah. Um, historic, um, my history is not good. Yeah. So where was, I guess, I don't know that, how you call him, Yashka? Yashka, you, you can call him Yahushua. His name was Yahushua. Yahushua. Yeah. Yeah. Where was he in time in relation to the destroying the place? Okay, so, so very, very good. Um, the, the, the second temple was destroyed by the Romans in the year 70 of the Common Era. Okay? Yashka was crucified around the year 30 of the Common Era. So Yashka was killed. Uh, 40 years before the destruction of the Beis HaMikdash. So when Yoshka was alive, the Beis HaMikdash was still up. In fact, uh, <laughs> the Christian Bible has a famous scene that he shows up, and a uh, famous scene, he, uh, he turns over the, uh, temp the tables of the money changers in the temple. It's a famous scene. Let, let me explain the scene to understand this. You have, you have to understand that Yoshka... The what? The, what? the phrase of how the tables have turned comes from That's right, that's right, 100%. <laughs> you know, Yeshka was making trouble. 
everybody who came, everybody who came to the base of Mikdash had to give a half a shekel, which is much more than our half a shekel today. So people come from different countries, different monies. They have to change it into the currency of Eretz Yisrael. Right? Just like you, right? you come off the plane, you got to take your dollars, you got to change it to shkalot. So there were money changers. It was a legitimate function. They, they had to be there because people came from all over the, the, the world, not all over, but all over the Middle East, and they needed to change it for, to pay their shekel obligations. So there were money changers in the temple, and they charged a little commission. They had a commission for each, each exchange. Okay? So Yasha comes in and he says, how dare you have commerce in the temple? And he, you know, turns the tables, right? And uh, he caught his trouble. But there was nothing wrong. The money changers are perfectly uh, legitimate part of the base of Mikdash there. So there still was a base of Mikdash, but 40 That's years uh, later. so ironic. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fascinating. Because I said churches take so much money. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that, that's for sure. Well, well, Dostoevsky, who, who is crazy, an anti-Semitic, but no. a brilliant, a brilliant, brilliant writer. Dostoevsky has a scene. Anti-Semitic? Huh? Oh yeah, he was anti-Semitic. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Oh, yeah. But he's a wonderful, wonderful writer. And in, in in the Brothers Karamazov, he has a whole scene. What would happen if Yashka came back to Earth? And basically, he says the Catholic Church would crucify him because Yashka would come in and say. Get rid of all your money. Get rid of all your wealth. You know, get, you know, <laughs> sell all your paintings to the poor. You know, give the money to the poor, and they would have to get rid of him because he's destroying the whole edifice. And there's a lot of truth. There's a lot of truth to that. People say, I mean, Lahavdil, Lahavdil, a million Abdullahs, that if Avraham Avinu would come back today, uh, he would be put in chayim because. Avraham Avinu prays for Saddam. You know, he prays for these real bad people. Hashem have mercy on them. So people would say, there'd be a wall poster. How dare this man, you know, pray for these drug dealers and these bums and these perverts. <laughs> he, was, he would be called like a you know, crazy person. But this was the meat of Avraham Avinu, right? So sometimes, uh, you know, we move very much away from the original ideas that were supposed to, supposed to motivate us, that we're supposed to embrace. Abbas Yisrael caring about everybody. You know, sometimes uh, we forget. We get close-minded. We can become cliquish, right? So that's the hint. Baruch Hashem. I mean, uh, the Rebbe has been one of the great, great teachers about that. But, uh, but very often, uh, even the most religious Jews can forget this very easily. I mean, I know here at Eretz Yisrael. I mean, uh, sometimes, uh, I mean, I've heard, little, I've heard little kids talk about uh, Chiloni, who's a secular Jew, it says, they're goyim, they're goyim. They're just goyim. That's, that's an awful, awful thing to say. You know, I think of something the Rebbe used to say. You know, we always use this phrase. When we talk about bringing a Jew closer to the mitzvahs, so the phrase that everybody uses is kirav rechokim, to draw near the person that's far. It's a very common expression. Everybody uses it. Rebbe didn't like it. The Rebbe says, what do you mean take a person who's far from Hashem and draw him near. Who says he's far? Every Jew is already close to Hashem. Maybe he doesn't know it yet. But you're not taking somebody who's far from Hashem and drawing him near. You have to know that he's already near. That's a, you know, you, know, you may call it semantic, but it's a, it's a real different type of mindset. It is a really, really beautiful way of thinking about your, your fellow Jew in that way. 
So it's again, we all use it. It's a very common, I mean, I'm sure Chabad uses it too. I, I mean, it's a very common expression, Kira for Chokin. You know, you, okay, okay. So you listen to the Haram, Brech Hashem. So maybe outside of Chabad, outside of Chabad, I can tell you it's an extremely, it's just a normal way of talking. But the Rebbe said, oh, you know, maybe you should think about that. In fact, the Rebbe even said to somebody, who says you're nearer than him? <laughs> you say, I'm going to draw a person, he's far away. Maybe he's closer than you already, you know. You don't even, you don't even know. So that's something to think about. Okay. Um, yeah, all right, so now I'm going to give you a third explanation. So I, so I gave, again, which is all a digression. Uh, what is the fast of the ninth of Tevez, right? So number one, reason number one is the uh, yard site of Ezra. Reason number two, the birthday of Yashka, which is something that we, we consider to be a, a bad thing for us. Uh, now reason number three, and this is really, really crazy, is it is the yard site, now remember, yard site meaning a righteous person, of a man that is called Shimon Kippa. Now you probably never heard of Shimon Kippa, uh, but Shimon Kippa is actually uh, Yashka's closest disciple or apostle, and that is none other than Peter. Peter. Let me give you a little history here. Um, all of Yashka's apostles were Jewish, right? And the one that was closest to him, his name was Simon, Shimon. But Shim- Yashka renamed him Peter, which is rock, Petra, rock, because he said, you're my rock, you're my support. So Shimon became Shimon, or Simon Peter. And in Hebrew, Aramaic, it's Shimon Kippah, because Kippah in Aramaic means rock. Hebrew is Evan, but in, uh, Kippah in Aramaic is rock. Simon the rock. So why on earth would we observe the yard site, not the birthday, the yard site of Shimon Kippah? So here's an amazing story that is brought down in a very late medrash. It's not necessarily an authoritative medrash. We're not entirely sure how true it is, but it is brought down as a story. And that is, Shimon Kippa was a religious Jew. He was from, he was a Shomer Mitzvah. And he lived in the early stages of Yashka of Christianity. And in those days, the first Christians were all Jews and they were practicing Judaism. They were in the synagogues. They were, you know, and there was a great danger because if you have the Christians who are Jews living among the Jews, then they could influence many Jews to follow their way. So the Sanhedrin wanted to create a mechanism where Christianity would become a separate religion and no longer be part of Judaism. So Shimon Kippa volunteered for a suicide mission. This is what he said. I will become the leader of this new religion. I will become the closest person to Yashka. And I will become the organizer of this new religion. And I will make it distinct from Judaism. I will make it a rejection of Judaism, rejection of the Torah. So So that way, all who follow Christianity will go away from the shul, go away from the synagogue. Now, what Shimon said was, that means... I will never be able to identify as a Jew anymore. I will have to. No, because he wanted to separate Christians from Jews. 
So he said, I will become a leader of the Christians. And I will get them to reject the Torah, reject the mitzvahs. Mm. So they will no longer be in the synagogues. They'll no longer be in the yeshivas. They'll no longer be in the Shabbos tables. They'll no longer be at the Pesach seders. I will make them a separate religion. And by making them a separate religion, they will not influence Jews anymore. Just like even today. Today, we have Jews that are called Messianic Jews. These are Jews. I mean, we had some cases. I know, I know yeah. Some yeah. And, you know, externally, they even look like they're Orthodox Jews. They may wear tzitzes and, 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 and they, you know, they, they dive in and they put on tefillin. But they believe in Yashka. We had a case uh, now. Someone, uh, he happened not to be Jewish and he impersonated them. I don't know how he did this. He said, apparently, he was Masada Kedushin. He married people and he wrote Gittin. I don't know how a guy showed that. And that was all. Oh, it's, 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 it's a nightmare. Wait, I mean, uh, there was a guy, there was a family here in Yerushalayim where uh, the, guy, the guy looks like totally, you know, religious. Uh, the guy's learned also. Uh, uh, and it turns out he's not, he's not even Jewish. Uh, he was, um, he believed in Yashka. He was impersonating like a rabbi. He was impersonating a rabbi. And in, in the years that he was here, uh, he, he, like, he did everything. Uh, he conducted marriages, uh, I think he shechted. Uh, he's a sofer. He wrote Sifrei Torah. Oh, uh, he did gittin. He did the. I don't know. I don't know how guy gets. He does gittin. So the problem is, like everything he does, he did, was invalid. Uh, how did they uncover it? How did they uncover it? Was very very strange. I think unfortunately, I mean. He lost his wife. His wife was also behaving like a, an Orthodox from woman. She, she, she had cancer, and I think uh, as she was dying, she started calling out for uh, for Yashka, for Jesus, whatever it is. And I think some of the kids said something to their classmates in a regular chacheder, you know. Did the kids know that they weren't Jewish? Well, let me put it this way. I'm, I'm not sure if they consider themselves Jewish or not, but they, they, they were taught about Jesus. They, they, they believed in that. So now, but, so, so it's a tragedy on top of a tragedy because Lamaisa, he lost his wife and these kids are orphaned. And that's a sad thing. On the other hand, the Jewish community wants nothing to do with them. So, so I, I don't know exactly what's going on, uh, but it's a, like, it's a double tragedy because uh, their own family suffered something and at the same time, you know, they were victimizing the Jewish community. So it's, it's crazy. So this is, what, this is what Peter was trying to do. Peter was trying to get the Christians out of Jew, Judaism. He's like a martyr. Right. So he basically said, I'm going to kind of lose my connection to Judaism in order to save the Jewish people. So he's like a double agent. Like a... That's right. That's right. So he asked for one request. He said, please remember my yard site and say prayers for me on the day that I died. And that's the ninth of Teves. Uh, and there's another thing that he said. He said he composed a prayer. This is going to be wild. And he asked people to say this prayer. And some say this prayer is Nishmas. Do you know the prayer of Nishmas? We say it on Shabbos. It's a beautiful, beautiful prayer. In fact, uh, it's also a segula for all sorts of things. Some people say Nishmas for children and for Shidduch and for health. But nishmas is a kind of the all-purpose tefillos that, that people say 
for all sorts of things. And according to some tradition, Shimon Kipa, Simon the Rock, is the author of Nishmas. Now again, it's, I'm, not saying, I'm not saying at all this is true, but it is brought down in some sources. Other sources say Sheker V'chazov, it could not be true. But it's such an interesting out-of-the-box because this explains something very enigmatic. When the Shulchan Aruch says some people fast on the ninth of Teves, it says, but they didn't want to give us the reason for it. Which <laughs> is very strange. Why would you say fast, but I'm not telling you why? Because they didn't want to be open about the connection to, to, to this Christian thing. You know, People wouldn't understand exactly what it's about. Yeah. Yes, that's true. That, that's, that, that's a question on this because the truth of the matter is historically the break was done by Paul. Uh, this medrash tries to make the break done by Peter. So that, that's another touch on the medrash. I mean, I think uh, the general history of Christianity would, would suggest that it was Paul who did it. Yeah. But uh, which, uh, Paul was not Shimon Kippa. Right? Shimon Kippa is Peter. By the way, Peter is the first pope. You know, uh, the way this works is this. Uh, you know, the, the Catholic Church has bishops, right? Bishops are in charge of cities. So every city has a bishop. There's the bishop of Jerusalem, the bishop of Baltimore, the bishop of Minneapolis, the bishop of Chicago. So the pope is really just the bishop of Rome. He's the bishop of Rome. So technically, he's the same as the bishop of Minneapolis. I mean, you know, the bishop of Rome. But what? But uh, they were macabre that the bishop of Rome should be the, the boss over everybody. So the first bishop of Rome was Peter, Shimon Kippa. So the first pope was, was Jewish. Uh, right? Shimon Kippa was the bishop of Rome. He was the first pope. And the Medrash brings down that in private, he kept mitzvahs, in private. That although he was break, taking Christianity away from Judaism, but in his private, uh, when nobody was looking, he still kept, uh, kept the mitzvahs. So very, very strange uh, story. Okay. Alrighty, so that's a little bit about uh, the 8th, the 9th, and the 10th of Teves. Our minog is that we only fast on the 10th of Teves, and if someone has difficulty, again, I would encourage uh, women to fast. I'm not, I don't uh, mean to say women should just ignore the 10th of Teves, but uh, if you do have a health problem or anything like that, uh, talk to whoever you talk to about these shilas, because we are more mako in this fast than we are for Tisha B'av. And certainly Yom Kippur, right? Yom Kippur literally has to be a matter of life and death. Uh, here it does not have to be that at all.